Thank you, Peyton, and good morning. I want to welcome you to worship, whether you're on the first floor, second floor, here on the third floor, or watching remotely. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus, and to answer Asher Blair's question, yes, I shopped at Ross. There you go. Yeah, I just call attention to the obvious, yes, yes. I want to welcome you to worship this morning. We have been declaring the excellencies of our God what he has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And so we are here to continue that as the people of God indwelled by the Spirit of God gathered around the Word of God. That's what we're here to do in church. Now, part of how we do church is together. One of the things we want to do is to continue to shrink the spaces between people's souls. So one of the things we've started doing this summer is this program all summer long called The Dinner Table. By now, hopefully, if you signed up for this, we had 53 households sign up for this. You've already had your first encounter, your first uh, engagement in a dinner party back in June. Well, you should have gotten an email for the July round. We have a whole new round coming in July for the dinner table. We want to encourage you to continue to do that both in July and in August as we continue to have people experience life on life and hear one another's stories. It is good for the kingdom. It is good for the church. It is good for our community. It is good for you. So having said all that, I want us to pray together, and then we're going to dive deep into our sermon series in the book of Colossians. So please pray with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are present by your spirit among your people. And so we pray, God, that you would illumine your word that you would give understanding and insight, that we would be changed from our time together this morning. We know, God, that what you want is to connect and to communicate and to convey truth to us so that we are changed. So would you do precisely that? Would all of us, God, in your power, because of your grace and mercy, walk out of here slightly different or perhaps even substantially different than when we entered? We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Colossians, and the sermon today, I don't usually do this, but the sermon today is titled Plans. Plans. Plans are simply how we accomplish our mission. Now, you may not know this, but every single human being, and you are numbered among them, every single human being in the history of humankind has a mission. Biblically, I would summarize your mission very broadly like this. Your mission is to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Just like King David, your mission, the thing precisely that you are trying to accomplish in your life is to be a man or woman after God's own heart. That's from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. So to, to make that a, a little bit more narrow, your purpose is to be a person. Now, you may hear that and at first response go, oh, well, I'm crushing it. I'm a person. I mean, I'm not a coffee mug or an area rug. I'm a person. But are you? But are you? Not necessarily. A lot of different entities out there are persons. And so to understand biblically, what I mean is by person, I have to quote, as I often do, and I feel the requisite responsibility to do so, I need to quote one of my heroes in the faith, Dr. Dallas Willard, who's now with the Lord. Here's how he biblically synthesizes to arrive at a definition of what a person is. It's not merely a human. It's more than that. Here's how he defines a person. A person is a living entity. So you can kind of check the box of, okay, how am I doing so far? Some of you, if you're not so sure, look around. We'll nudge you. 
A person is a living entity that has a certain kind of life. Not just that you're alive, not just that you are animate, not just that you exist, but you are alive and you have a certain kind of life, primarily one of self-determination. A lot of us want to stop right there. You don't get to. We have to keep going because this definition is actually very good and it's very helpful. A certain kind of life. What is that kind of life? Primarily one of self-determination, meaning you are intentionally, volitionally directing your life, its patterns, its habits, its functions, according to adopted values. Now, that's a brilliant insight. None of us come into this world entirely with the right set of values. We have to adopt them. They have to be revealed to us by God, by his spirit, among his people, through his word. So a person has a certain kind of life, primarily one that is in self-determination in terms of adopted values with the possibility and indeed the vital need of worship. You're not fully a person unless you are directing all of your being to extol, to declare the excellencies of the one that made you. Now you're becoming a person. Persons rarely become present when they are not heartily wanted. Now, I don't know all of you, but I know a lot of your stories. I know a lot of the things that you've been struggling with and going through, and I can tell you the vast majority of it is because at some level in your soul's marrow, you don't really believe that you're wanted. And so your development as a person is stunted. But your purpose is to be a person. We are so wanted and loved and cherished and seen and adored by God. In fact, the Christian life is learning to live like you're actually loved because you are. What will it take for you and I to believe that? See, God's purpose, his plan for the planet is to populate it with persons, not just with humans, in that respect, we're killing it. I mean, there's 8 billion of us. No, no, no. What God wants is for the planet to be covered with persons. When, not if, when we lose sight of that, our gravitational pull goes to what we would call our shadow mission. There's a guy named John Ortberg, who's a writer, he's a pastor, and he's written this wonderfully uh, thought through idea of what's called a shadow mission. A shadow mission is very similar to our mission by all outward appearances, but it is unworthy and it is low and it is base and it is dark. It's what we pursue by default. It's patterns of thought and actions based on temptations and our own selfishness that lead us to betray our deepest values. I think all of you know exactly what I'm talking about in one way or another. The result of a shadow mission is always the same. Regret and guilt, always. We try to be happy. We try to find joy by being what the world says a person is in our own strength, in our own way, according to what we functionally trust, what we value the most. And so a whole lot of our time, our shadow mission has to do with either sensuality or speech. Sensuality has to do what we're trying to experience for ourselves so that we will feel a certain way, so that we will feel maybe even just alive. Speech has to do with how we express ourselves. See, we're trying to experience things, but we're also trying to express ourselves all the time. These shadow missions produce nothing but wreckage of our entire lives, our homes, our churches, our communities, and the world. They turn us in on themselves 
in on ourselves and make us no particular good to anyone else around us. We fiddle with our shadow missions while our world around us burns, just like Nero in Rome. See, our mission that God gives us centers on our character, who we are and whose we are. That is the biblical model, the construct, the molecular structure of a mission, is that it centers on your and my character. But a shadow mission, ah, looks very similar to the outward eye. The shadow mission centers on our gifts, our skills, our talents, and our abilities, rather than our character. You can be envious of somebody else's talents and skills and abilities. You can't be envious of somebody else's character. So what are you primarily focusing on? God knows this about us. He made us, and he had a front row seat to the fall and the corruption and the corrosion of humankind. And so he's given us his word that reads us far more penetratingly than we read it so that we'll be sufficiently equipped to have an abundant life now in this life as we walk around becoming persons, not just one day when we die. So much of our lives tend to just be on autopilot, just going with the cultural flow. But that kind of life is not what wisely self-directed according to the values we are to adopt from Scripture. And so we degrade and we disintegrate as persons. And we live nothing more than a shadow mission that is essentially nothing more than the Matthew chapter 7 broad road that leads to destruction. But God has so much more for us. He invites us into so much more. And so Finally, it brings us to our big idea for the passage that Peyton's already read for us. And our big idea goes like this. Plan to be a person. It's an imperative. Make a plan. Stick to the plan. Work the plan. Plan to be a person. That's our big idea. And so with all that, please turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 5. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. I want you to plan to be a person. We're in this book of Colossians, the theme of which this whole summer is the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence, the primacy of Jesus Christ. More practically, rubber meeting the road, it is confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. Whatever's going on anywhere around the globe or through time over the last 2,000 years, all these different issues pop up and emerge. Those heresies and errors and mistakes are usually local, but truth is universal. What's going on? What's the problem? Jesus is king. Ah, problem solved. This is going on over there at that particular time. What's the problem? It's this. What's the solution? Jesus is king. That's the theme of Colossians. And so it literally could not be more practical and pertinent to us. We use that gospel definition all the time, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. This is some of the most brilliant, insightful therapy and counseling to apply the gospel and rub it into our hearts and minds and even relationships. So Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5 that Peyton's already read for us. Paul says, put to death. He gets right to it. No niceties. Just kill it. Kill it. The old King James, mortify. It sounds nicer. There's more syllables. Paul just says, kill it. Kill it in the face. Therefore. Ah, so there's a therefore. It's connecting back to what he's already said. The end of verse four. Now, Dan George walked us through verses one through four last week. I'm not going to rehash all that because Dan did a great job. But we get three very crucial indicatives 
in verse 4 that set us up for the imperative of verse 5. Very quickly, verse 4. When Christ, and we get three indicatives, who is your life. Now, you, you might just have a tendency to brush right past that, but don't. Jesus is the only complete person. He is the only complete human person, I should say. And Paul says, Jesus is your life. He is the person that's actually living his life through you. And if you try to go it alone without him as the person, you're experiencing a living death. You're going full zombie mode. And there's no joy there. There's no, there's no life there. Christ is your life. And second indicative, he's going to appear. He's coming back. Now, listen, it's been 2,000 years. I get it. I hear it a lot. A lot of us as Christians, time has passed. And we begin to think of the return of Jesus, second advent, like it's myth or legend. And so functionally, we behave like, oh, it's just, that's a sweet by and by thing that's not really practically valid in my day-to-day -day walking around life. But it is. There's nothing more foundational. There's nothing more fundamental, basic, and bedrock than Jesus is coming again. He is our life, and he's coming back. And then the third little indicative there, verse 4, you also will appear with him in glory. Your glory is not your project. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is our life. He's coming back, and we will come with him, and we will appear with him in glory. He's going to bestow it. Therefore, in view of those three indicatives, because those things are true, Paul finally gives us an imperative. Put to death. Kill it. Mortify it. What is earthly in you? Now, this has been misunderstood and therefore misapplied for centuries. It's caused all sorts of deviations and divergences in the church that misunderstood because of the same Gnostic error that was happening in Colossae. Oh, that the physical body is bad. It's evil. It isn't. You'll never find that in your Bible. God created material human beings and called them very good. They're not evil. Our material, physical bodies are not evil, but they are corroded and corrupted and susceptible to compromise. You know this. I know this. He's saying put to death, kill, separate from, put off that old energy source. You and I have a tendency by default to jack into, to plug into the wrong energy source. Paul says take it off. That garb is garbage. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? And now we're going to hear all about these sensualities, these things that we as a species tend to want to experience so that we will feel alive. One errant manifestation of our shadow mission is sensuality. The other errant manifestation is speech. We'll get there in just a moment, what we want to express. Here he's going to say, put to death these things that are not coming from above. They're not coming from the true person. They're coming from your misunderstanding of your mission. And it's a shadow mission that's leading you to pursue these experiences. Now, can I just say something? This has really been fascinating to be a pastor in the 21st century. It didn't really get to be questioned in previous decades, but over the last several years, it's getting questioned a whole lot more. I hear this all the time in premarital counseling sessions or even just having conversations downstairs in the foundry, typically from younger people, and they will literally, without any blush whatsoever, say things like, hey, the notion of sex outside of marriage being wrong, well, that's an antiquated idea that's not really biblical. And then I stand up and I just choke them out right there. I just choke them. Because Paul said, kill it. No, it's not what he meant. 
And they're, 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 listen, they're very, very sincere. Sincerity is not a metric of accuracy and truth, by the by. They're very sincere, like, oh, no, no, that doesn't ever really say in the Bible that you're not supposed to have sexual relations outside of marriage, except for when the Apostle Paul writes over and over again. Here's what he says in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. He starts with the artillery shell, and then he gets more precise. Sexual immorality, this idea of porneon, fairly broad. It essentially means you are objectifying another human being who is in the process of being personed and you're treating that person who is a bearer of the image of God, you're treating them like an object for your pleasure. As though you are God and have some sort of authority, entitlement, rights, superiority over that other person. And it is called in the old King James fornication. That makes us blush a little bit. Hornicating. Ah! And it is strictly prohibited. Why? Just because it's, it's gross? And no, because it's bad for us, because God loves us. Sexual relations are the enactment, the re-ratification of the covenant of marriage, which is why, let me just say as directly as I can, and I'm glad there are families in this room on all three floors and watching remotely. Sexual relations are expressly and explicitly limited to a husband and a wife because it is a sign of the covenant. Just like circumcision was for the Old Testament under the law of Moses, baptism is in the New Testament for the sign of conversion and salvation. There is a sign of covenantal union and matrimony, and it is sexual relations. And to ratify a covenant with any other is an invalidation of that covenant. And it is very serious. We have been very effective and successful as a society and a culture at eroding that notion to our detriment. Now, I'm not trying to be all fight and fundamentalist and yeehaw. I'm not. I'm just saying, listen, God who loves us, who wants us to be a person, says, get rid of that stuff. Sexual immorality. And then he narrows down the funnel slightly of specificity. Put this stuff to death. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Uh, you might say unclean. The, the literal translation would be ignoble, non-noble things that are gross, that corrupt and pollute our minds, our thinking, and our feeling. I don't know how you do that. There are a lot of flickering pixels competing for your soul. Paul says, kill it in the face. Mortify it. Get rid of it. Separate from it. A lot of people will say, oh, I watched this, that, and the other, and I shudder, wow, that's, boy, that's a lot of influence. Oh, I can handle it, they say. And then three sentences later, they're dropping the same imagery and verbiage as they just consumed on a screen. Put to death, Paul says, don't negotiate. We do not negotiate with terrorists. And these images and these ideas are terrorizing us. Impurity, passion, the term is epithumia. It's intense, strong desire. Is all intense desire wrong? No, 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 no. Jesus himself says, I epithumia. I strongly desire to have this final Passover with you. That's a good thing. But it's an unmanaged, uh, an illicit, intense, strong desire that drives us away from our mission of character and into a shadow mission of what we will experience. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness or greed. That's weird. He's been talking about sensuality and experience. Why does he throw greed in here? Ah, well, 
This is an interesting thing. Paul's doing something very clever. It's not just the desire for additional stuff or money, although that might be a part of it. He's talking about, he's talking about the imaginary world of wanting more sensual experience, wanting more uh, sensuality that is above and beyond and outside of God's design and plan for our lives. I want more because I deserve it. I want more. I deserve to feel this. And so we allow our minds to go on field trips, and our mind is the scene of the crime. Yes, Paul says, of course, like the 10th commandment in Exodus 20, covetousness or greed is idolatry. But he's got a very specific context here of sensuality, fantasizing, imagining more. I want, I deserve, and it's a victimless crime. So let me get very, very precise. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. It impacts and affects everybody around you. Paul says, put it to death, get rid of it. It is idolatry. Verse 5, it is idolatry. It is putting something else in the place that only God is strong enough to exist. And everything else is dangerously unqualified and tremendously too weak for the job. It is when we functionally trust something to make us happy. That's idolatry. How's business? When we functionally trust something to scratch that itch, to fulfill us, to make us happy, and we think if I lost that, I couldn't go on. That's an idol. So, Paul says, put to death all these sensual experiences, all these pursuits, get rid of them. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Perhaps a better translation. On account of these, the wrath of God comes. It is coming, it is coming, it comes. It is being poured out. You see, God, Paul tells us in Romans, is in a program of setting the world to rights. Now, I want to remind you, Sin is a very big deal. This is the Apostle Paul sitting in prison in Rome, writing to some people that he's never met in a place that he's never been, simply on a report by their pastor, Epaphras, who's gone all the way from Colossae to Rome to say, listen, we've got all these influences and ideas and images that are starting to infiltrate our church, Paul, and I don't know what to do. And Paul wastes no time. Listen, he's writing to church people. I get it. There are people out there who behave like the world, who are sinners. But in Colossae, there were people who were behaving like they were not indwelled by the Spirit, like they didn't have the Word and like they didn't have one another. And so that must mean that even today, in this place, there are people who are struggling with all sorts of pattern sin. The wrath of God comes. Now, let me be very clear. If you are a Christian, you have been judged for that sin already at the cross. But any Christian who simply shrugs it off and says, eh, it doesn't really matter, doesn't actually understand the enormity of what took place on the cross and the expense and the extent of that mercy that God pours out in his justice. On account of these things, sin is a really big deal. Wrath comes in the persistent present tense. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. You see what Paul's doing? It's great therapy. This was your default shadow mission. This is what you pursued to try to have fulfillment, to try to have happiness, to try to have completion. He says this in Romans. He says it in Corinthians. He says it in Titus. He says it in Galatians. It's a recurring theme. That's interesting. He's writing to all these different churches in different regions, and they're all struggling with the same thing. What does that tell us? This is a persistent human 
problem. We're all failing on our own at personality, at becoming the persons God created. It's to me, we're all failing. They're all struggling in the same way. Paul says, in these you too once walked. This is our default position, our default practice. We have to adopt a different set of values that are outside of us from beyond and from above, we might say. And these two you once walked when you were living in them. This is how you were characterized. It's really interesting to me. Paul and all the writers of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, seem to be mostly fixated on us fixing the things in here or addressing the things in here, not aiming all of our artillery, all of our aggression, all of our ammunition at all the problems out there. You'd sort of think Paul, he's an apostle. He, he, he knows the truth. He walked with Jesus for three years after his conversion in Acts chapter 9. Surely Paul's going to take dead aim and try to dismantle all of those errors that were happening in Colossae. No, he doesn't do that. He instead says, put to death the things that are the snags that the hooks and the barbs of this world will grab. Put that stuff to, get, to death because what this world needs is persons. Not a whole bunch of people trying to focus on all the bad things out there. Can I get a little preachy? The church for 2,000 years has tried to fix all the problems out there, and we're not so good at that because we're still super susceptible to all the problems in here. Paul says, no, I want you to be a person. Plan to be a person. Get rid of all of these hooks and barbs that are making you available to be snagged. Get rid of all of that. And then, as a person, you will be influential, impactful, irresistibly so in the world because God's plan for the world is to populate it with persons. You used to walk around like that, Paul says. Why would you go back to that? You're putting on that old, disgusting garment of garbage. Don't do that. Take that thing off. That's disgusting, Paul says. And he has to say it to all of us for all of our lives. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. And now we're going to transition from dealing with sensuality, what we want to experience. Now we're going to transition to speech, how we express ourselves, how we deal with one another externally and expressively. But now you must put them all away. Take it off like a garment. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. All these ways that we express, trying to subdue, trying to establish superiority, trying to put others in their place so that I can be elevated to my own. This is what we do as we express ourselves to try to accomplish our mission. You're doing that, but I want you to listen to me. And all the while, I'm trying to get you to focus on my talents, my skills, my abilities, my giftednesses so that you will see me the way I want to be seen because deep down I don't really believe that I do have any acceptable value. Put all this stuff away. Take it off. Unplug from there. Do not lie to one another. Why does Paul tell these people in the church to stop lying to one another? Because <laughs> they're lying to one another. They're putting on false airs and they're walking around pretending like they've got it all together. And when somebody finally does reveal that they're struggling, boy, they just get pounced on. In the 21st century, we call that church, unfortunately. Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't lie to one another. 
be honest. You don't have it together any more than anybody else does. We can be honest. This is what church is about. I am needy. I'm a terrible sinner, utterly depraved, loved more than I can possibly fathom. And we get to tell one another those things. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Here's these bookends. Take that stuff off. Put it away. Get rid of it. Move it aside with its practices, its attitudes, and its actions. Separate, disassociate, separate, disassociate. Plan to be a person. Verse 10, and have put on the new self. This is so great. This is all the Old Testament language where God would tell the children of Israel over and over again, go in and take the land that the Lord your God has already given you. God's done it. You have a responsibility. God's done it. You get to participate, but it's done. It's finished. Now go get it. Take off the old self. It smells. And by the way, if you think the people around you can't smell it, they can. You've put on the new self. This is how God has dressed us in Christ. It's that wonderful parable in Matthew where Jesus says, the king dresses his guests. But put it on intentionally with attitude that produces actions. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed. All the time. We are being renewed. Romans 12 says it is being transformed. It is always being renewed. The more we spend time with Jesus, the more we look longingly at him, the more we are transformed increasingly into his likeness. 1 John 3, 2. When we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. In the meantime, we keep looking at him. We keep knowing him more. And the more we know him, the more we are responsible for the person that he is in us. Plan to be a person after the image of its creator. This is what we were created to be. The image was marred. The image was corroded and corrupted, but it is being renewed in knowledge, not just data, not just information, but experiential knowledge. Paul judos this Gnostic word, knowledge, right back on them. Oh, you're trying to accomplish secret knowledge? Paul says, no, no. it's a knowledge of a person, not a code of conduct, not a rule book. No, 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 no. It is knowledge of a person, namely Jesus. Here, Paul says, verse 11, here in this body, in this fellowship, in this gathering of believers, here there is not Greek and Jew. There's no caste system. There's no pecking order. Issues of ethnicity, nationality, W-2 degree. None of that matters at all. Here, he says, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Your religious background, your ability to win on Bible Jeopardy, your ability to be able to recite all 12 disciples and all 12 minor prophets. Good for you. It actually wins you nothing. It's kind of cool good on you. Maybe you can even sing the song. I can. Doesn't really accomplish anything. Circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian. The Greeks said anyone who was not Greek was barbarian because their language sounded like bar, 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 bar. And then there's Scythians. The Greek actually says people from the panhandle is what that means. They're, no, not really. <laughs> Scythians were like, there's barbarians. And then there are people who are just like knuckle dragon heathens. Doesn't matter. You can be a Greek a politician, you can be a Scythian, and that is as far and extreme as you can possibly imagine, and it doesn't matter. The scorecards that we set up in our shadow missions to elevate our gifts, our skills, our talents, our abilities, all of those things are pointless. And then Paul says something absolutely utter and awesome. 
barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Yes, you should pursue your, your freedom, he says to the slaves, but that's got nothing to do with your actual eternal worth. But Christ is all. He's the only complete person that is human. He is all and he is in all. He's the person. This is really great therapy. As Paul says, I want you to focus on your mission. Church in Colossae that I've never met. Church in East Texas in the 21st century that I've never met. I want you to focus on your mission and separate, disassociate from your shadow mission. Plan to be a person. Let me apply this as quickly as I can in some very, very short implications or applications. Number one goes like this. As you're planning to be a person, here's the question, actually. The first one is a question. It goes like this. Are you planning to keep on sinning? Have you thought about that? Are you planning to keep on sinning? We say this all the time at my house. We say this. Luck is a terrible strategy. But for many of us, that's our strategy of becoming a person. We just hope we're going to stumble and trip into being a fully developed in the image of God, person, to be in his image. But if we don't even know that that's our strategy, there's a pretty good indicator that we are only on a shadow mission, simply relying on our skills, abilities, talents, giftednesses. So are you planning to keep on sinning? I suspect most of us who have spent any time whatsoever in church or a Bible study or BSF or a life group or VBS or listening to a radio or a podcast or whatever reflexively say, no, I'm not planning to keep on sinning. Really? Because of course you are, and so am I. But the truth of God's word cuts into us like a scalpel. We know that sin is bad, but look how we arrange our days and our activities. We spend an enormous amount of time and energy planning on ways to glorify ourselves, don't we? To feel whatever it is that we think makes us happy. We arrange our schedules and those around us so that we can experience sensuality somehow, some way, outside the confines of God's design. I've talked to a lot of guys, and they'll talk about ways that they arrange for their wives to be out of the house while their kid's at school so they can experience. And would they ever say that out loud? Probably not. But once they do, something very interesting happens. We plan out opportunities to express ourselves in speech to others so that they will know our superiority and our entitlement. Here's another quick litmus test, a little barometer. Do you spend more time capitalizing on your strengths, gifts, abilities, skills, and talents, or do you spend time developing your character? See, sinful plans and shadow missions have a lot in common with vampires. Stick with me. Vampires. The biggest difference, of course, is that vampires aren't really real. But sinful plans and shadow missions are absolutely real. They both dwell in darkness and they go strong in the shadows. And they suck the life right out of you. Hmm. But they explode when they're exposed to light. Isn't that interesting how many vampire movies have been made over the last several decades? Why? Because it calls to us. There is something that is sucking the life out of us, and it's strong in the shadows. We can't quite figure it out, but if you put the sunlight on it, it explodes. So I encourage you. I even invite you, and I even double dog dare you. That's right, I said it. I double dog dare you. Mm-hmm. 
to expose your shadow mission and your sinful plans to the light. Here's what I mean. When those thoughts come into your mind, and they do and they will, and it'll happen before dinner tonight. When those thoughts come into your mind and you begin to sort of self-justify and rationalize and map out the ways that you will gratify the desires of the sinful nature, speak it out loud. Say it out loud. Maybe to yourself, maybe to somebody else in the room. Hey, this is what I'm planning this afternoon. And then you'll both throw open your mouths and it's disgusting. And it loses its power. The fangs recede. Hey, did you hear that thing about Sally? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call Joe, and I'm going to tell Joe all about Sally, and then I'm going to tell Joe that we should pray for her and bless her heart because she is such a blankety blank, blank, blank. Now, when you say that, I'm like, good heavens, that's terrible. I don't want to do that. Right, speak it out loud. Stab it in the heart. Expose it to the light. Are you planning to keep on sinning? Yes, of course you are, and so am I because we go on autopilot so easily. And so when you do, not if, when you do, speak it out loud to your spouse, to a trusted friend, to someone else you know and love and trust, and watch as God continues to present you as a person, plan to be a person. Second point goes like this. Sin is seeking satisfaction in something other than the gospel. And we all do it. Sin is seeking satisfaction in something other than the gospel. That's because very narrowly, sin is anything apart from faith, Romans 14, 23b. And so when we think that we can accomplish our own joy on our own terms, we're not trusting in the finished work of the gospel. We're trying to be satisfied in something so much smaller and less noble. We say this all the time because it's true. Joy is the outcome of fulfillment, Joy is the outcome of fulfillment and our shadow missions and our sinful plans will never and they can never really fulfill us. There's a great, great theologian of the 20th century, 1969, named Michael Jagger. You might know him as Mick Jagger. And he was actually exactly correct when he said, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Jagger knew that repetition is the mother of learning and so he said the same thing over and over again and then he repeated himself and then he was redundant. I can't get no satisfaction, though I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no, 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 satisfaction. It's like he's reading Romans. It's like he's reading Colossians 3. No, you can't get no satisfaction, but you can receive it by grace for free. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. See what Paul says to Timothy? We've been given everything we need for life and godliness to be a person by grace for free. So plan to be a person. Third point goes very simply like this. It's just one word. It goes like this. Repent! Now, repent is one of those words that I want to be very careful and clear about. See, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the cathedral door at Wittenberg, Germany, hoping to start a conversation. What he, of course, did was start the Protestant Reformation and the great awakening of the centrality of the authority of Scripture. The very first of his 95 Theses, these points that he was trying to make, the very first one was, all of life is repentance, You might say that Luther was the very first evangelical Protestant, so he knew what he was talking about. We in Protestantism and in evangelicalism today, we don't really like that word repentance. It sort of seems dowdy and fundamentalist and boring and puritanical and slightly Amish, 
Repent. No, man, we're all about grace and freedom and party on Wayne. Uh, Paul says, repent. All of life is repentance. It's ironic because we don't really understand repentance in the way the Bible means us. Most of us think that repentance involves carrying our sin up Mount Sinai. Let me explain. Most of us think that repentance means carrying our sin, the bad things that we've done, the things that we're convicted on, the things that we're guilty and regretful about, to carry them up and comparing them to the law of Moses. And so that just makes us feel gross and bad and pitiful. And we don't really like how that feels because we like to experience sensuality. And so we don't habitually do it. And so there's usually no repentance whatsoever. But the biblical model of repentance is completely different. Rather than hauling our sin up Mount Sinai to the law of God, we're invited to haul our sin up Mount Calvary to the Son of God. And that is all the difference in the world. If all we ever do is think about the consequences of our sin, then ironically, all that does is it feeds darkness to the vampire. It gives strength to our shadow mission and to our sinful plans. If all you're ever thinking about is consequences, it's when I say to you, don't think about a tree. My God, my God, whatever you do, do not think about a tree. You're like, oh, barky tree, leafy tree, tree, tree. It's all you can do. No, no, no. We don't just haul our sin up Mount Sinai. We haul it up Mount Calvary to the very Son of God. We look at what our sin did to God, this God that loves us so much that he gave his only son to become all of our sin. So repentance means constantly and consistently calling our sin what it really is and stopping the charade of giving it all these little labels to make it sound palatable, what G. Campbell Morgan would call sins in good standing. Things that are just, it's okay, I just, you know, We'll justify like this. We'll say things to ourselves and to one another. Oh, my feelings are very easily hurt. Stop it! What you mean, be honest, is I'm very bitter and resentful. And if you say the slightest thing, slightest thing, I'm, my feelings are going to be hurt. Why? Because I have a seed of bitterness and resentfulness that I have allowed to grow. And in fact, I cultivate it. In fact, I curate it. In fact, I feed it and I take care, care of it. And I just. <laughs> but my feelings are so very easily hurt. Be honest. Name it. Call that vampire what it is. I'm very driven and organized. Pfft. No, you're a control freak trying to be sovereign over your own space. Come on. Let's be honest with one another. Don't tell lies to one another. I'm usually the subject matter expert in conversations. Pfft. No, 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 no. You're insecure and have to prove your intellect and worth so that you'll be loved and appreciated. I love to preach God's word and love God's people. It's my mission statement. <laughs> I want you to like me. That's pretty much it. I just need approval in a word. Shadow mission, approval. And I fight it every single day. I fight it every single week. And people I love are hurt by it. And if I trot it up Mount Sinai and I go, this, this, this is what I'm like, it just crushes. It just, but when I trot it up Mount Calvary and I look at the Son of God, I go, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? I have arranged conversations. I have arranged textual messages and emails and phone calls so that people will like me. And then I look at the beaten, bloodied, battered, naked body of the very Son of God who loves me 
And it's not about the consequences. Like, <sighs> that person became a non-person. Do you see? Paul says, put that stuff off. Put it to death. Kill it in the face. Do you see what Jesus did? He became all of it, and he mortified it. He put it to death. He became all of the gross, all of the foul, all of the filth. So I look at him, and I go, what kind of a person would do that? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. One who approves. One who accepts. One who adores me, who actually loves me. And so the rest of my life doesn't have to be some charade of trying to win yours and get yours or... Worse even than that, trying to shove you down so that I can feel more approved and accepted and adored. See, that's being a person. Plan to be a person. It, repentance is acknowledging that only Jesus can accomplish what I need and desire most. And so I turn to trust him day by day, moment by moment. Repent, repent. All of life, Luther said, and he was right, is repentance. I have that slight drift on the autopilot. Stop it. Repent. And there's joy in that. I used to think about this, Colossians 3, 7. Now I think thus. I have taken off the old and I've put on the new. And by this time tomorrow, I will have taken off the new and put on the old again. Repent. Take off the old and put on the new. And you go, boy, that gets tiresome. When do I get a break? Death. <laughs> and you will sleep like a baby. <laughs> Plan to be a person. Look at Jesus, the only complete human person. Look what he accomplished on the cross. Why? Because he thinks you're worth it. He put to death all of the horrors that you're trying to anesthetize. He became it. You are approved. You're accepted. You're loved. You're adored. Stand there awkwardly with a paunch and your hands hanging down to your sides. He can't love you anymore. He can't love you any less. So plan. Be diligent. Be deliberate. Be intentional. Be volitional. Be a person. You want to make a difference in what's going on in our world? And I know there are voices outside that are angry. I know. I get it. Jesus wants persons on this planet. So plan. So much is at stake. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the person of your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word, for your spirit, and for your people. God, thank you for grace. We get this wrong a lot. I get this wrong normatively. And yet, you love me. You love us. And so we do pray, God, for wisdom, insight, for spiritual maturity as you continue to renew us day by day from glory to glory into the image of your son, Jesus, that we would lock arms, stack souls and participate collaboratively in being grown up into the persons you've created us to be. We know, God, that if and when you do that, that is how you will impact and influence the community around us and the world in which we live. So, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that is still abiding only, solely in their shadow mission of trying to find fulfillment on their own, God, would you not use my words, would you use the truth of your word and your spirit would you allow them to hear a better sermon than whatever was just preached? And would you lead them out of death 
into life, would you dress them in the person of your son Jesus? Would you indwell them by your spirit to live your life in and through them? Father, would you give them boldness and courage and clarity to be wrecked over who they have been and joy and invigoration to who you have made them to be and give them courage to speak with someone they know and love and trust about that. For the rest of us, Father, would you impact us all over again with the gospel? We're not trying to fix all the world's problems out there, but we are to be focused on the person that you've created us to be so that you use us for your purpose. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.